Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'm here to preach God's word to you this morning. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We're not going to read it all in, in, one, um, in one swoop, but I'm just going to read the first couple verses And then I'm going to pray for us and for our time this morning. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And I'm reading from the ESV. I'm not sure what you have in front of you, but that's, that's just what I'm going to be reading. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Let's pray for a moment. God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, I've, um, we're coming from all sorts of places, geographically, emotionally, even spiritually. Uh, Some of us are doing well and some of us are not. Some of us are filled with hope and some of us are filled with shame. And so wherever we are, we ask that you would meet us by your word this morning, that you would till the soil of our hearts, Holy Spirit, so that your words, whatever is from you, that you would plant it in our hearts so that it would bear fruit in our lives. And if you do that, Jesus, our time will be well spent. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, you're in for another treat uh, because I want to read excerpts of a fifth grade letter uh, that I wrote to my senior self. So this is a project that my fifth grade teacher made us do. I discovered it a few years ago. Listen to what I said to myself seven years into the future. Dear senior self, when I was in fifth grade, somebody was a great friend to me. His name is Matt Wood. Matt Wood, you might be in this room right now for all I know. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to him. Uh, In fifth grade, we went to the Huntsville Space Center, and I said, I'm sure I'm going to go to better places later. West Lafayette, Indiana included. May 24th, 1995, we were going out to recess, and I ran into a pole, and everything went black, but I was okay. I'm still okay, thankfully, after that incident. (laughs) I hope in 12th grade, the United States will still have God. I'm not really sure what I meant by that statement, but I think it's still true. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be an Air Force pilot. Uh, definitely missed the mark on that one. Ended it by saying, love me. P.S. Have I lost any weight yet? Exclamation point. Now, if you had seen me as a fifth grader, you, that P.S. would have made a whole lot of sense. Because as a fifth grader, I was overweight, I was a bit chubby, and because of that, I was deeply insecure. And so you can imagine putting yourself in my shoes as a fifth grader writing and thinking about seven years from now, thinking, are things different? I hope so. Are things different? Please tell me they're different. And so friends, as you think about your future, whether that's a month from now, a year from now, seven years from now, What are your hopes? What would, to put it this way, what would your PS be? What are you hoping and saying, is this different? I hope it's different. Please let it be different. 
What would it be? P.S. Am I married yet? P.S. Do we have kids yet? P.S. Are the kids that we have okay? P.S. Has our church grown? Has it changed in ways that are helpful or harmful? Does our community even know we exist? Are we serving our community in ways that bring life or that bring hurt? P.S. Have I changed or am I still just angry all the time? Have I actually grown in the ways that I really desperately want to grow or am I doing the same old, same old? P.S. Does the future look happy and exciting and full of promise or am I still just as sad and just as scared as I was today? Am I still grieving or do I look at the future with hope? Friends, what would your P.S. be? if you wrote a letter to yourself in the future. Because when we think about things like this, it exposes and unearths our hopes. And if you have hopes, which we all do in this room, you also know what it's like to have unmet hopes, to have dashed and crushed dreams. As I was thinking about uh, this passage and this morning, a couple names came to my mind. Uh, Kate Spade. Anthony Bourdain, even Robin Williams. Some of you knew uh, or saw the headlines a few weeks ago where both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain took their lives. And Robin Williams several years ago took his own life. And the reasons why they did that and, uh, uh, are so complex and I, and I don't want to broad brush them or simplify them. But in some measure we can say that there was something about the way that they looked into their future They looked into their future and said, I think it's better for me to end it now than to confront the dashed hopes and the crushed dreams that await me. And so where are the places that you feel hopeless this morning, where you feel desperate? Because Jesus, we're going to see in this passage, we've already seen one, but we'll see another. He encounters two very desperate and hopeless people. And the good news this morning is that Jesus heals the hopeless. That two people who feel like they have absolutely no hope, Jesus heals them. And so we read this, these couple of verses this morning, but let's just go in. The, uh, the, uh, my outline this morning, hopefully it's simple, it's the desperate request, which is what we just read. And then there's an interruption. And then finally, hope beyond hope. And so what is this desperate request? Well, Jesus is crossing the sea. Uh, If we were reading earlier in chapter 5, it says he's crossing the sea. He had gone to the the country of the Gerasenes, so now he's back on the other side. And he encounters this great crowd as he's beside the sea. And as he's talking, one of the rulers of the synagogue, whose name is Jairus, runs up to him. And now, we might go, what is a ruler of the synagogue? Well, in our, to update the language, we would say that Jairus was an elder. He was someone who had religious authority, who had zeal for God. He was a respected member of the community. This was somebody who loved God and sought to obey him. He was doing the right things. But you can see, if you were there that day, you could see as he approaches Jesus that something is wrong. Because Jairus walks up to Jesus, he sees him, and he falls at his feet, which is not the typical greeting. It wasn't then, it wasn't now. And what does he say? My 
little girl, my little daughter, is at the point of death. We learn later that this daughter is 12 years old. So you can imagine what's going through Jairus' mind. He has been probably at her bedside for hours, days, if not weeks. She is sick and she's not getting better. This little girl that his wife and, and he had prayed for, the one that he had bounced on his knee, the one that he had visions of one day, I'm gonna walk her down the aisle. One day I might be holding grandkids. All the laughter, all the smiles. And now she's laying on this bed and she's not getting up. And his world is crashing down around him. And he hears something though. He hears Jesus has come back. And Jesus' reputation has begun to precede him. And so Jairus says, I know what I need to do. (laughs) Because there is no Tylenol. There is no modern medicine. There is no hospital. There is no ambulance. And so Jairus understands, I have one shot, and that is if Jesus comes here and heals my little girl. And so you can imagine, he runs out of the house. People might have tried to say hello to him on the way, but he will not acknowledge anybody until he gets to Jesus. For those of you who are parents in the room, you may remember the first time that that your, um, your oldest was sick, like really sick. For us, so I neglected to mention this earlier, my wife and I, Margaret, her name is Margaret, we've been married for 10 years. We have three kids, Anna, who is five, Kate, who is three, and uh, Drew, Andrew, who is uh, two mu- t- 10 weeks old today, so a little over two months. When Anna was a little over one, we had gone to uh, our annual summer conference in Panama City Beach. And on Saturday, we, the plan was to leave and go to my wife's parents' house in Jacksonville. It was like a five, six-hour drive. And our daughter, Anna, had been sick pretty much the whole week. And so that morning, she was still sick, but you really can't stay at a camp (laughs) when it's time to leave. And so we thought, well, we've got to go anyway, so let's put her in the car and go. And so we drive the five, six hours to Jacksonville. We get there, we have dinner, and right before we put her down to bed, we think, well, let's just check her temperature, see how she's doing. And we check her temperature, and we saw it said 106. And so we both, my wife and I immediately go, oh, okay. And so my wife calls the nurse hotline, and she's describing the situation, talking about how Anna's feeling, and she tells the nurse, well, yeah, we, the latest temperature we got was 106, and the nurse says, oh, excuse me? You need to go to the ER right now. In fact, if she sustains that temperature too long, you're probably looking at brain damage. And so immediately for us, and me in particular, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we've gotta go now, like now, now. There's no time to wait. Like, do I run red lights? Is this okay? Like, you know, you just start thinking, uh, somebody's got to fix my little girl. And that's how Jairus feels. Jairus is absolutely desperate. And in his desperation, he goes to Jesus. And so, friends, I want to ask you to, this morning, like, where are the places that you feel desperate? The places where you, like Jairus, are facing death. I mean, that's what makes Jairus so desperate is that he's staring death in the face and there is no more helpless or hopeless enemy we face than death. So where do you feel desperate this morning? For some of us, we might feel desperate because the cancer is back again. And all of a sudden now the doctors are thinking, are talking in ways that make us very nervous For some of us, we're desperate because our child is about to go off to college. 
Maybe they're about to get married. Maybe they're about to move. And they still bristle when we mention that we're going to church on Sunday and we'd love for you to come. And we begin to think, are they going to be okay? I don't know. Will I see them again? Will I talk to them again? Can we talk about that again? For some of us, we feel desperate because we see so much poverty and so much injustice. And it's not just out there somewhere in a third world country, it's here. And we hear stories about government employees embezzling money. The money that is supposed to be used to fix problems is instead used to prop up injustice. And we begin to think, is somebody going to do something about this? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. For some of us, we feel desperate because we are still unemployed. And we have actually lost track of the number of job applications we have sent out. And we just expect to hear no now. Or some of us feel desperate because we are still trying to work through and process the wounds from our past. And it feels like a hopeless battle. It feels like we are always going to be defined by our wounds. And so where are the places that you feel desperate this morning, friends? Because Jairus is absolutely desperate. And he goes to Jesus in his desperation. Do you notice what Jesus does? Jesus does exactly what we want him to do. And he went with him. That's what verse 24 says. Jesus goes with Jairus. You can almost hear him saying, Jairus saying, my little girl, Jesus. Jesus, say no more. Let's go. But then something happens. Verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so as Jesus is making his way to this house, we are introduced to this woman. And this woman, we don't know much about her, but we know that she has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So as long as Jairus' girl has been alive, this woman has had a problem. And we won't go into the details about what this exactly means. But one thing that's worth noting is that this woman has been unclean for 12 years. She's probably physically weak. And did you notice how the text describes that she has suffered much under many physicians? She had spent everything she had to get better. She went to treatment after treatment, doctor after doctor, thinking maybe this will fix it, maybe that will fix it. And what does it say? She was no better, but rather grew worse. Friends, she has suffered. She has gone bankrupt to fix her physically. And, but that's not even, that's bad. But she's not just suffering physically, she's suffering socially. She's suffering emotionally because she is a social pariah. If you remember the, the text that uh, was read earlier from Leviticus 5, if you touch something that's, that is unclean, you become unclean. And so it was dangerous to touch this woman for 12 years. 12 years. She has suffered. And so while she's certainly suffering physically, we could also say that she is suffering shame. 
Uh, Brene Brown, who's sort of a pop psychologist, defines shame like this. Shame is the fear of disconnection, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is often described in the language of, of scarcity, as Brene Brown says, this language of not enough. I am not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just not enough. And that's what this woman feels. And so where are the places of shame for us this morning? Because shame sometimes lets us, we actually say these things, I'm just not a good enough husband, not a good enough worker, not a good enough wife. And no amount of overworking, no amount of overparenting, no, over, no amount of overfriending or oversunning or overdaughtering seems to fix this deep gnawing sense within us that there is just something deeply wrong with us that won't get fixed. For some of us, shame uh, is, well, uh, it says something like this, well, real Christians don't struggle with that. Shame whispers to us and says, you call yourself a Christian? That's not what I see in your life. I mean, real Christians, if you were a real Christian, you would be over this by now. Everybody else is. You're the only one. For some of us, shame makes us feel dirty because of what others have done to us. It whispers to our hearts and it says things like, you know, you deserved it. The way you were dressed, the way you acted. It's your fault. That's what shame whispers to our hearts. Shame makes us feel like we are, that we contaminate others by our presence, by our touch. Shame makes us feel like we are the ones who have committed the unforgivable sins. We don't say those out loud. These are the sins that we, we theoretically know that Jesus can deal with, but we dare not whisper them or say them out loud because we're at some level, we're like, Ugh, but really? For some of us, it could mean that we had an abortion and we have not told a soul and we are hoping and praying that someone doesn't find out or maybe you know someone. For some of us, it could be that we think our body is cursed and so we try everything that we do. We limit the amount of food that we take in we try so hard to gain control over our lives because we feel like something is wrong with us. Shame whispers to our hearts and says, you don't belong here. It whispers, you know, if they knew, if the other people in this room knew, they wouldn't let you back next week. And that's what this woman has dealt with for 12 long years, day in, and day out. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. See what this woman does? She says, I have got to get to Jesus. Because if I can just touch him, I will be okay. And what does she do? She goes to Jesus clothed in her shame. 
with the crowd all over him and all around him and just touches, the, touches his garments. And immediately, Mark doesn't say, and after a while, things resolved itself. What? Immediately, she is healed. The touch of faith heals this woman. But, this is, don't miss this part. The story goes on. Jesus is not done with this woman. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you can almost read this with a bit of a sarcastic tone. Uh, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened, to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you see what Jesus does? Jesus doesn't let her touch him and sort of slink away to live a normal life now. Because if Jesus had let her do that, he would have healed her physically, but not socially and not emotionally. See what Jesus does? Jesus says, who touched my garments? And the disciples, and they're sarcastic, like, come on, Jesus, everybody's touching you. This is ridiculous. What are you saying? Who touched me? Which is always a bad idea to be sarcastic to Jesus, right? Like, it's just not a good idea. But Jesus presses it. He's like, I'm not letting her get away. And what does he make her do? He makes her say it out loud. And you can imagine the fear of this woman Because as she's saying this out loud, what is she saying? I have been unclean. (laughs) And if everybody's touching Jesus and she touched Jesus, you, you see what happened? Everybody touched her. So everybody's unclean. There's some deep shame that she is working through and having to say out loud. And we are wondering, what is Jesus gonna say? You know, why didn't you wait until I was alone? You you you, know, you messed everybody else's schedule up here. You're messing up my schedule. Didn't you hear there's a little girl I'm trying to go heal? Why are you bothering me? What does he say? Daughter. There's such compassion. There's such tenderness in his voice. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, Jesus heals her shame. He heals her physically, but he does so much more than that. He heals her shame. And how does he heal her shame? He takes it on himself. If you touch something or someone that is unclean, then you become unclean. Do you see the implication here? When she touches Jesus, she, in theory at least, would make Jesus unclean with her. But the holiness of Jesus burns through her uncleanness and makes her clean. Jesus takes her uncleanness. Jesus swallows her shame and his great love and his great mercy so that she is now clean. Friends, if Jesus did that 2,000 years ago, he can do that and he does that day in and day out now. Jesus became unclean so that she is clean. Jesus, if shame is the fear of disconnection, Jesus connects with this woman in a way that no one had for 12 years. And in doing so, he heals her. And so friends, I just, 
want to press you a little bit this morning. For those of us in this room that are wrestling with deep places of shame, that Jesus heals your shame. That Jesus knows your shame. In fact, when Jesus is crucified on the cross, all the pictures show him like partially clothed, but really the, the gospel writers go out of their way to say that Jesus was crucified naked. Why bother with that? Because nakedness is a sign of shame. Do you see what's going on? On the cross, Jesus, who knew no shame, is shameful. Why? Because he is taking on the shame of his people so that we might no longer bear it. Friends, the gospel is that Jesus takes your shame so that you bear it no more. And if that wasn't good enough, we're still in a bit of a dilemma, aren't we? Because this interruption is unfolding. How do you think Jairus is feeling? Like, I, we don't know. But I imagine it probably goes something like this. Uh, Jesus, hurry up. <laughs> My little girl, she's still sick. I mean, this is great that you're being healed and all, woman, but like, we gotta go. We don't have time for this. Jesus, you're gonna be late. Verse 25, or excuse me, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The worst news possible has come to Jairus. The thing that he has feared for so long has happened. His daughter has died. And he wasn't even there. I mean, he's dealing now with his own shame of the cynical voice inside his head going, you really thought Jesus could have done something, and now you weren't even there to hold your little girl's hand when she died. It's time to move on, right? That's what, the, that's what they say in verse 35. That's the voice of the cynic, or sometimes we call him the realist, depending on where, how you feel about these things, right? Why trouble Jesus anymore? You hear what they're saying? Uh, this is beyond what Jesus can do. It's pointless. Let him go his way. He probably has better things to do than take care of you. In fact, there's a documentary that uh, came out a number of years ago. It's called Waiting for Superman. It's about the educational system in America. And one of the quotes there it struck me, it's, it's stayed with me ever since. Listen to what this man says. One of the saddest days of my life was when my mother told me Superman did not exist. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean he's not real? And she thought I was crying because it's like Santa Claus isn't real. And I was crying because there is no one coming with enough power to save us. Do you hear what that quote's saying? So, <laughs> The, the problem isn't that um, my, you know, hopes and dreams of a superhero are now dashed. My problem is that there is a problem here that no one can fix. There's no one with enough power to save us. And that's what verse 35 says. Why bother Jesus? He doesn't have the power to do what we need him to do. Verse 36 but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. 
And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So if you're keeping score, that's twice that people have reacted either sarcastically or mockingly to Jesus in this story. Because Jesus walks into a house that is full of grief and sadness. In that culture, they would often hire professional mourners to mourn with the family. But even here, it's not that hard to ima- it's not really that hard to convince somebody to weep over a loss, a child who is dead. Because there is something about that, if you've ever been in any situation like that, there's something that cries out and says, This is not right. Something is wrong. And Jesus walks in and says, why are y'all crying? She's just sleeping. And if you or I are in that house, we would have laughed at him just like they did. Like, it wasn't that they were such a primitive culture that they didn't understand death. Friends, if you've ever been around death, it haunts you. And so they knew death. That's why they laughed at Jesus. Because they are laughing at, they're looking at Jesus and saying, she's dead, what are you talking about? What does Jesus do next? Verse 40. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where their child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years old, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus walks into a room full of death and looks at this little girl and with his words reaches down into death and pulls her back. Friends, Jesus defeats death. If death is the one enemy that we are all hopeless against, right? it's the one enemy that we all face and we all lose, Jesus defeats death. Death is hopeless against Jesus. Death has no power against him. And friends, that's why we hope in Jesus. Because every time in the Gospels where Jesus encounters death, death loses. No one else has that kind of power. So much so that at the end of his life, death, not only, he doesn't only encounter death, but death swallows him up. And yet, as one song says, that death is swallowed up in life. Or, I think it's the Gettys say that death is dead, love is won, Christ is conquered. Friends, hope in Jesus is the most sane, rational thing to do. Because the only hopeless enemy that you and I face Death itself is powerless against this man. And so if that's true, what does it look like to hope in Jesus? Just a few thoughts. Hope trusts Jesus. Do you notice how Jesus heals these two people, this woman and this family? He makes this woman, this woman has gone around for 12 years, unclean, unwanted. And Jesus is late to Jairus' home, his daughter dies. I mean, the healing of Jesus hurts. Jesus makes this woman say out loud 
what she has been wrestling with for 12 years, that she has tried so hard to keep under wraps and to keep quiet. And what does Jesus do? He brings it to the light of day so that it might wither and die. And so what could it look like for us to trust Jesus? For some of us, it could mean uh, being honest and saying that thing out loud that we have tried so hard to keep under wraps and to let no one else know, whether that's in your family, whether that's in your life group. What if we said the prayer request that's really on our heart and instead of the one that we think people want us to say or that we think real Christians should say? Because trusting in Jesus, the healing of Jesus hurts, but he wounds us to heal us. Or as Hosea says, he has torn us that he might heal us. He, he wields the scalpel not to hurt us maliciously, but to cut away everything that is unclean and that is wrong so that we might have true and lasting healing. And what if that started today with you being honest about what's really going on? But hope also waits for Jesus. Jesus seems too late, doesn't he? When you were first reading these stories, like, Jesus, you're late. You're late on both stories. <laughs> and yet, Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. And so, friends, where are the places, or where is the place this morning, where you feel like, Jesus, you are late? You should have shown up last week, last month, last year. Where are you? What if Jesus isn't late, but what if Jesus has you exactly where he wants you? And it, what does it look like to wait on Jesus and to hope in him in the midst of this? It looks a lot like what we're doing right now. It means being with him in his word and praying when it feels pointless. It means going to church instead of sleeping in. Not because we always feel like it, but because we're, we are desperate and we need to get to him. It means fighting for justice, even when it feels like no one is paying attention because he is the God of justice, and one day justice will prevail in this life or the next. Because hope knows that Jesus wins. Jesus conquers death. Friends, Revelation 1 uh, chapter 1 says that Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. If Jesus holds the keys, it means that death serves his purposes. He owns it. Death does not master Jesus. Jesus has mastered death. And so in the moment that it feels like death wins is actually the very moment that life wins on the cross. I saw this when I was uh, in high school. When I was 17, one of my uh, childhood friends uh, died tragically. He drowned. And uh, the family asked me to be a pallbearer for the funeral. And I remember going back and being in that house, the house of death, and being in his room and seeing all these memories and all these things. And in the midst of that, I'll never forget, in the midst of their mourning, uh, there was a moment where this family whose oldest son had just died, got a little cupcake and put a candle on it and began singing happy birthday to someone who was in the house visiting them because it was their birthday. And that still seems to me like one of the most absurd things in the world. <laughs> you know, like, your son just died. 
Why are you bothering to sing happy birthday to a friend? If anything, they should be comforting you. They should be crying with you. They should be offering their shoulder, and yet you're singing happy birthday to them. What are you doing? Why in the world would someone do that? Because they knew that they would see their son again. Because they knew that my friend Claiborne had passed through death and that Jesus, as the good shepherd, had taken him to the other side and that they would see their son again. That death was not the end. And so they can celebrate life in the midst of death because death is dead and love is won and Christ has conquered. The only way we can celebrate birthdays in the house of death is because life has won. Because Christ has won. So friends, what are your hopes this morning? Where are the places in your life that feel dashed, that feel crushed? Where are the places you feel desperate or even overcome with shame? Because friends, this passage shows us that Jesus heals the hopeless. If he did it then, he can, he will, and he does do it again. And so hoping in him, trusting in him, is not uh, a foolish choice. It is the most sane and rational thing we can do because Jesus has conquered death. And he can heal us and fix what is wrong in us and in the world. Consider that an invitation to trust in him this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would give us grace to do what feels impossible. It feels really hard to trust in you. It feels, Lord, in the midst of places and things that feel so hopeless and helpless. Hoping in you seems uh, at times like a foolish thing to do. And yet, Lord, you have conquered death. Death is hopeless and powerless against you. And so we pray that you would give us grace and faith that to build our hope on you, where everything else really is sinking sand. And so would we stand on the solid rock of Christ? Would our hope and our faith and our trust rest in you and in nothing less? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.